It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, November 19th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. American Jews rally in Washington amid an alarming spike in anti-Semitic and Islamophobic attacks. This absolutely unacceptable situation we're facing in the moment. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. How much will our Navy shrink before it grows again? It was a hot topic at the last presidential debate over worries the U.S. may intervene if China goes after Taiwan. When you decommission a ship that still has life, you take out capacity today And you also take out an investment in people to build the crews that you're going to need to man newer ships when they come. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Tens of thousands of American Jews and supporters of Israel rallied on the National Mall this week in one of the largest shows of solidarity since the October 7th terror attacks in Israel in the war in Gaza. Israel's President Isaac Herzog addressed the rally from the Western Wall. We come together to march for good over evil, for human morality over bloodthirst. We march for light over darkness. And on the stage in D.C., Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The United States has always stood with Israel, and we will do everything to see that that never, ever changes. The rally comes amid an exponential spike of reported anti-Semitic incidents around the country, especially on college campuses. The president strongly condemns these brazen acts of anti-Semitism and has repeatedly made clear targeting Jews because of their beliefs or their identity is unacceptable. Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre has singled out threats that led to an arrest of a student at Cornell University. This week, the Biden White House also announced new steps to address anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on campuses, including more information sharing on potential threats between the Justice Department and Homeland Security with campus law enforcement. And the Secretary of Education has hosted roundtables with Jewish organization leaders. One of those leaders who has met with officials at the White House is Adam Lehman, the president and CEO of Hillel International, the largest Jewish student organization in the world, with a a presence on more than 850 college and university campuses. I actually want to start, Jared, by just pointing out how critical this moment is when it comes to the degrading of campus climate for Jewish students. I, we have never seen anything like this in our 100-year history at Hillel. Uh, and Hillel, we are on 850 campuses in North America and around the world. Uh, We're in touch with hundreds of thousands of Jewish students in that process. And just in this past five weeks, since the horrific terrorist attacks by Hamas in Israel, um, we have seen more than a 600 percent increase in incidences of anti-Semitism. And while these do include uh, hundreds of cases of hate speech and vandalism, uh, those types of issues, they they have also included 
more than two dozen physical assaults. So for us, uh, we are living in a completely unacceptable situation. We're working for to address this through every channel we possibly can. Now, if I take that back to uh, the role of the federal government, of the White House, frankly, of the many parts of the administration that can play a role here, uh, I, I think in a positive way, uh, the Biden administration has at least named the issue as a significant one, even prior to uh, the tragedies of October 7th, the White House have put together uh, a comprehensive strategy to address anti-Semitism, and they have since convened myself and other Jewish community leaders uh, to deal with this more urgent mm -hmm. crisis. Uh, what we need in this moment is not only meetings and words, we need concrete actions and concrete actions that address the real security and physical safety concerns of Jewish students on campus, we need real action in terms of uh, prosecution when it comes to hate crimes. Let me ask the question, I guess, this way. How much of this is trying to educate students as well as college administrators about their role, about what sort of crosses that line between um, free speech and hate speech and maybe a violation of, of actual uh, you know, federal law that, that dictates a lot of federal funding. The most important players that are impacting campus climate and that have responsibility to define and guide campus climate are university leaders and administrators. They are literally in the job of leading their campuses, guiding and regulating what happens on their campuses. And they are there to create educational environments where students can safely learn uh, and relate to one another, including a robust debate. We, we're big fans of free speech at Hillel, and I would say more broadly within the Jewish community, but we need university administrators to take back control of their campuses because their campuses have effectively been taken hostage by uh, outside groups like Students for Justice in Palestine uh, that are using campus as another front, they say it, another front in their global intifada. You know, they are funded by some of the same sources that are funding Hamas and other terrorist organizations, and they are bringing divisiveness, hatred, harassment, uh, threats, and even assault to the quad, to the dorms, you know, to, to these environments that are supposed to be our finest institutions of higher learning. Uh, in America. So we want them not only to speak out on these issues, and we, of course, want to hear their voices loud and clear, uh, just as we wanted clear, uh, unqualified statements, naming the terrorism of October 7th for what it was. We now need their loud voices naming that there is uh, an epidemic of campus anti-Semitism that has to be addressed. We need them to take prompt disciplinary action uh, this is not a question of free speech or academic free freedom. There are students, faculty, and staff who are specifically targeting their harassment, who are creating the hostile and discriminatory environment not permitted under Title VI, uh, and in many cases are breaking laws. So we need universities to get off the fence and actually discipline uh, students, rogue faculty, and student organizations that uh, are, again, dividing their campuses. So I think if we can see that kind of firm action 
from university administrators. We're going to get back to a campus environment that's not only safe uh, and secure for Jewish students, but that can be that kind of environment for all students. I'd go back as one final yeah. point to your question about education. Of course, we need uh, universities to advance education when it comes to the nature of contemporary anti-Semitism. Uh, we need them to do that in the context of their DEI initiatives. It, it is really unacceptable that so many universities have created DEI offices that do not encompass anti-Semitism as part of their mandate, even though anti-Semitism is one of the most common, if not the most common uh, issue of discrimination and hate crime that is reported on campuses today. So the educational mandate is certainly key, but it is also not sufficient, sufficient at a time when we need uh, the disciplining, the security investments, and these other more forceful ways that universities can get their campuses back under control. Let me draw out a, a little bit. Uh, obviously, Hillel is on hundreds of college campuses. Um, we have seen this uptick certainly after October 7th, certainly after Israel uh, began its operations in Gaza. Um, based on, on kind of that, how do you view the, this current moment? Is this kind of a, a moment in time or were these sentiments kind of always simmering under the surface and just really didn't have, uh, I guess, that, that catalyst to, to drive forward into a very public way that we're seeing now? In, in other words, has this sort of anti-Semitism always been kind of latent at these college campuses or is it a fairly new phenomenon that, that is created uh, by current events? Jewish communities on campus have been facing increasingly hostile environments now for a few decades. This is a function of both um, the very well-funded, organized uh, efforts and campaigns that are completely geared towards demonizing and delegitimizing the state of Israel that have been uh, pursuing those agendas on campuses for the last 20 plus years. And you put that together uh, with, uh, you know, a, a more prevalent ideological agenda that has flattened the nature of who is the oppressor, who is the oppressed, uh, theories of decolonization, all of the um, theoretical and ideological approaches that we've seen grow over recent years, and that uh, inevitably and consistently position Israel, and with that, Jews as part of the problem rather than as part of a community that should be uh, respected, understood, and appreciated. In that context, we had already been dealing with growing levels of anti-Semitism. That said, October 7th uh, launched us into a completely new level of the issue. It took what had been simmering below the surface and punctured that surface in hundreds of um, episodes that, again, are, are actually presenting real threat and real danger for Jewish students. And related to that, uh, while we absolutely are seeing particular concern um, or particular risk for uh, Israeli students or students who are outwardly showing their support for the state of Israel, these issues are spilling over to impact any Jewish student. You know, it, when students are getting harassed walking past uh, a Students for Justice in Palestine rally, 
no one is asking them as they're blocking their way, pushing them or um, otherwise threatening or harassing them. No one's saying, what do you think about the two state solution? No one's saying, do you empathize with all of the civilians who are being impacted in this war, including those in Gaza? And the answer would be yes. Uh, in, in most or all those cases, they're just noting them as Jews. They are uh, shouting epithets at them as Jews. And again, that's this absolutely unacceptable situation we're facing in the moment. What advice are you giving student leaders on on Hillel's around the country? At Hillel, we have always been not only a big proponent for student leadership, but a core part of uh, you know our whole approach to the work is to empower student leaders to be able to lead within the Jewish community and ultimately to lead within the broader campus. Uh, community and beyond as as great contributing members of those communities. In this moment, uh, student leadership is as important as ever. We have uh, organized and supported thousands of student leaders across our campuses to themselves organize uh, other students for rallies, for vigils, uh, to support one another in the face of uh, this rising anti-Semitism on campus. They are out advocating not only on campus in person, but also in social media. We have hundreds of students who are creating content to push back against so much of the vitriolic propaganda that is not only demonizing Israel, but is targeting Jewish students in social media. Uh, And, you know, they're working to educate their peers. It's just become a very toxic, difficult environment where uh, even as many of our Jewish student leaders are open, as painful as it is, to continuing to try to dialogue with other students and other groups. They're not always getting uh, great reception in terms of uh, those efforts at outreach in this moment. That's what I was going to kind of ask. Like, So how much of this is kind of telling students that it's okay to be visible to you know, push back and, and put forward your counter arguments versus obviously we've seen some of these uh, universities have to put forward some pretty significant security warnings uh, to their student bodies and to their Jewish students. Of course, we want student safety for Jewish students and all students on campus. And with that being the case, uh, our Hillel's are advising their own students not to specifically go to counter protest in a way that is going to lead Uh, to violence. That said, and very importantly, we are absolutely encouraging Jewish students to uh, live their Judaism loudly and proudly. Jewish students should not need to go underground in terms of their Jewish identities, in terms of their affinity for the state of Israel, which is so embedded within uh, the core of Jewish identity when it comes to Jewish history, Jewish theology, the largest Jewish population in the world and beyond. And so our Jewish students are uh, not only encouraged, but are in fact um, continuing to show up uh, as Jewish students, as Jewish student leaders, and that has to be part of the equation as we move forward. How has the uh, response over the last few weeks been from a, a lot of the interfaith partners that Hillel works with? We at Hillel have, for our entire 100-year history, invested in interfaith relationship building, uh, in cross-group uh, relationship building, including dialogue across difference in that context. I, I have to be honest, it's been a disappointing several weeks in terms of all of the investments so many of our campus colleagues have made in um, 
continuing to look for partnership across campus. There are some really wonderful exceptions where members of, uh, you, you know, the Catholic or other uh, branches of the Christian community have reached out and expressed empathy going back to October 7th and continued uh, to show support for their Jewish student uh, communities and their Jewish professional counterparts on campus. That's been true uh, for certain of our Muslim partners on campus. And we are so grateful in those cases where we've been able to maintain dialogue and maintain relationships. But those are sadly the exception at this point. Uh, one of the um, biggest shocks and biggest disappointments for Jewish communities on campus uh, was early on at the point of October 7th, before there was any political context for Israeli response, our communities had gone through this enormous trauma uh, with the slaughtering of so many innocent Israelis uh, on that day. And they were not hearing en masse from partner organizations, from peers. Of course, there were many, many exceptions, and we so value uh, students who have spoken up on behalf of their uh, Jewish friends and peers and other organizations. But we didn't see the outpouring that we frankly anticipated in the context of that trauma. Let me finish with this. As you've met with, uh, I know, members at the Department of Education, other administration uh, folks, what is it that, that you've kind of pressed upon them that, that your organization needs to see here, not just in this moment, but maybe lessons learned moving forward for the next several years or decades? Yeah, it is so important that at this point in our country's history and at this point uh, in the arc for higher education, that um, federal agencies uh, do their jobs and do them aggressively when it comes to creating positive cam uh, campus climates. So number one, that means at the Department of Justice level that we see swift and aggressive prosecution of hate crimes, and that needs to apply just as much to hate crimes directed at uh, Jews as it does to any other uh, minority who's uh, covered by hate crime protections. It means at an FBI level, we need really aggressive and prompt investigation of, um, you know, these issues that have bubbled up on campus. I, I don't need to recount what I'm sure so many of your listeners are familiar with, uh, with the uh, very direct threats against Jewish students and Jewish, uh, Jewish communities on campus, where they do merit FBI investigation. And uh, if we have that level of investigation, that will in and of itself be a deterrent against uh, future incidences and future issues. At the Department of Education level, we are asking for more robust enforcement of Title VI through the Office of Civil Rights. It's a, a really important uh, way to drive accountability because if we can't count uh, systematically on every university taking seriously its responsibilities in this area, we need OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, to actually um, pursue that agenda. And, and we're actually grateful because Assistant Secretary Catherine Lehman, who oversees that work, has been uh, an aggressive partner in this area. Uh, you know, candidly, this is one of the areas of the federal government where they actually need more, not less resource to uh, address the many complaints that are um, arising. And finally, with the Department of Homeland Security or others who are impacting security, 
even with all of our efforts at education, even with all of our efforts at enlisting university partnership, the bottom line is anti-Semitism is not going away tomorrow and it's probably not going away ever. And so we also need you know, broad-based security focus, security coordination when it comes to making sure that uh, our students are safe on campus. Adam, I appreciate the time and, and obviously a very challenging time for, for your organization, but I know uh, I know you you have a strong organization, a strong uh, number of campuses around the country. I, I wish you the, the very best moving forward. Thank you so much, Jared. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Throughout the year, our Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley, who's since retired, appeared before a number of budget hearings for the next fiscal year to make the case for their budget, an $842 billion spending plan, an increase over each of the prior two years, with a 40% increase in particular for the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. We're investing a a total of $1.2 billion in the submarine industrial base, and we're buying two Virginia-class attack submarines and one Columbia-class ballistic missile submarine. But at hearings earlier this year, some Republicans like Virginia Congressman Rob Whitman took issue with a plan to decommission some Navy ships, leaving us with a smaller fleet in the short term. It also builds nine ships, that's great, but it retires 11 ships. And I just have a hard time seeing where we're going. How does this send a message to the Chinese that this is a deterrent effect for what we know is coming. Austin has insisted we are modernizing our military. It is about uh, the quality, the capability of the platforms, and not necessarily the number. We talked about fighting as a, as a member of uh, a coalition. You know, we, we, we don't go to battle uh, uh, on our own. Typically. So we'd be relying on allies and partners, too. Well, this became a topic at the last debate, where moderator Hugh Hewitt pressed each candidate on their shipbuilding plan, and if they have one. Former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley zoomed out. We should be arming Taiwan. Make sure they have the equipment they need. Make sure they have the training they need now. There is nothing China fears more than knowing that America will have Taiwan's back. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said he was committed. I've already released a plan. We're going to get to 355 ships at the end of the first term, 385 ships at the end of the second term, but we're going to have a path to 600 ships over the next 20 years. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie had a different approach. If we are going to deter China from invading Taiwan, the The only way we're going to do it is to make sure that they don't know whether how many nuclear submarines from the United States of America are in the South China Sea and in that area and ready to strike on them if they decide to move on Taiwan. And so we, as our first priority, need to go directly to our nuclear sub-program queue and we need to increase it drastically. That would be priority number one. But it appears the plan is to decommission some ships and in the short term we will have fewer than we have now. So today... The Navy has 291 ships. The goal set in 2016 was to be at 355. Uh, They never really gave a deadline for it. Brent Sadler is a former Navy captain and senior research fellow of Naval Warfare and Advanced Technologies at the Heritage Foundation. By all accounts, that was supposed to be by 2035, 2032, depending on who you talk to. But 2035 is kind of like the de facto goal. We're far from it. We're not even the right trajectory. So decommissioning, so retirements of ships that still have some life in them, If you're not meeting your goal, doesn't make a lot of sense. 
if you have any intent to grow to that, you have to train the sailors, the shipyard workers that have to maintain them. You got to keep them employed uh, and you have to train the officers. They're going to have to fight that ship. And that takes a decade to train them. And so when you decommission a ship that still has life, you take out capability capacity uh, today and you also take out an investment in people to build the crews that you're going to need to man newer ships when they come. So all it does is just doubles down on downward pressures of just accelerating a smaller fleet and certainly it doesn't grow it. And those retirement rates, you got to overcome that because the fleet that we've been building and the fleet that we have, really it's still just an echo of Reagan's you know, 600 ship Navy of the eighties. We're still kind of living off that. But is that the, is that the right number, Brent? The 39 ship number is that the, that's the effort is to decommission that amount. Yes. I mean, it's not this year. It's if you look at it over over time, yeah, it's over five years. Uh, And when you look at it, a lot of those ships in there, they're, they're past their life. And this is that cold war relic. I mean, the, the cold war fleet is time for it to retire. Uh, there's no more life left in these ships. So we haven't built the numbers that we should have been building the last 20 years. And it's now the delay where you could have had a little marginal incremental increases. You're now where you have to have a shock to the system to rapidly pick up what we should have been doing all along to get the numbers we need on a year-to-year build basis. And they're not all outdated, right? Some of them are being yes. retired well before their time. The, the, I'm reading a little bit about mm. these literal combat ships that that sort yes. of weren't... Uh, what happened with those? Oh, so we're looking at probably about six to 10 ships that, and I think really the number is in the five years, like six, that still have life in them. Like they're being retired at five, 10, 10 years for a ship that should be around for 30 years, quite mm. frankly. And so uh, the, the issue and why Navy's trying to decommission them, one it was not the ship that the Navy sought back in 1999 and 2000. It was too expensive. It was too much ship for purpose. Then, because of cost cutting, didn't put enough weapons on it. Because, again, the mission was during the era of fighting terrorists and engaging coastal nations without large blue water navies, that you didn't need to have that kind of outfit and weapon systems. Now, we need to have a blue water navy to fight the Chinese. And so the Navy says, this isn't going to meet that mission, so let's get rid of it. Problem with that thinking is that there's so many missions all over the world for the Navy to fill today in the Caribbean, the Gulf of Guinea, uh, off of West Africa, the Indian Ocean, the the Arabian Gulf, the Eastern Mediterranean. These are places where you don't need a carrier strike group or a high-end warship capable of missile defense, but you need a ship that can outclass the smaller navies and coast guards that you operate in that area. And the littoral combat ship can still do that. And oh, by the way, the Navy, because they're being forced to by Congress, they're starting to find some really creative uses for these littoral combat ships. Think of like a mothership for a fleet of unmanned uh, aircraft and submersibles. Really? Oh, absolutely. So they're they're (laughs) being forced to find uses, which were always there. Right. So. That's great. Well, you would expect that from our military members. So let's just get a little bit into the congressional weeds here. Um, As Mm. of October, um, CBO, Congressional Budget Office, says we've got 290 ships. And we would see a decrease in that number even further over the next few years before we would then ramp up to anywhere from 319 ships 
to 367. Mm -hmm. It depends on which path we take. Um, the problem is we have our own military brass saying China will retake Taiwan by force if it has to by 2027. So to your earlier point, is a temporary, temporary decrease of ships during this time an issue? Uh, totally. It sends a signal to China that we're not serious about securing our interest and allies in the region. Most importantly, not serious about defending Taiwan, which provides a giant flashing green light for China to get more aggressive, more belligerent, and more confident that they can stand us down in a confrontation this decade. And, and those numbers, it's an open question that if China is successful or if we get bloody this decade, it's still an open question which way we go. Do we regress and, and look inward and to a smaller world uh, and smaller prosperity for Americans? Or do we try to resist and push back? If we push back later, again, it's like trying to build a fleet. You could add a ship a year in build rate 10, 20 years ago, but now you have to add 15. The, the cost, the compounded cost now also go up much higher in blood and treasure if we're going to reverse those trends in the 2030s. You say fewer ships means it shows China we're not serious, but we heard from Secretary yes. Austin earlier this year. He was testifying about all of the decommissioning of the ships. He was saying, don't confuse quantity with quality, that we're, we're moving towards a, a better, more advanced fleet at the end of the day. But he also said, should it come you know, to it, we wouldn't go to war alone. We'd, we'd have allies and partners. Are those sufficient explanations for a temporary decrease in our naval fleet? With due respect to the general, uh, now our Secretary of Defense, uh, the general's not, not being totally honest uh, from an operational, a military operational perspective. If you have a few assets that are, you know, super ships, like the, some people will jokingly make the analogy, you can have one Death Star, but we all know how that story ends. <laughs> you have all your eggs in one basket, and the Chinese have been spending a couple, like 20 years refining and developing anti-ship ballistic missiles. Um, it's the same kind of thing, having a few Death Stars floating around, but a lot of missiles and a lot of small guys the Chinese can send your way. All they have to do is take out one and your entire war effort basically collapses. So there needs to be a dispersal. This is something the Navy has been struggling with for about 14 years called distributed lethality to try to get around this problem. But you need to have numbers. Uh, at the end of the day, you have to get the balance right. It's like a good cocktail. You're going to need to have a few aircraft carriers mixed in there with some destroyers and cruisers for defense and Swiss Army knife kind of capabilities, but high end, but then mixed in with some unmanned to disperse your sensors and your weapon systems so that you can actually sense, but also so that if you lose one platform, it's not the end of your fight. Hmm. China's Navy is what now? 340 ships? It's the largest Navy? The truth of the matter is it's been the largest Navy since 2015, but it's only started to get pub, uh, really a lot of public attention in the last couple of years. Uh, it's does unfortunate. It, but Brent, does this, does this fleet, do they have any limitations? Because they're growing too, oh. right? But how advanced are they? I mean, so they've got quantity, but is that yeah. is it advanced quantity? Yeah. So the 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 fallacy that folks in the Pentagon and and General Austin make is they do a ship to ship comparison. That's not how a fight would unfold. And so we have advantages in the way we would fight, uh, and those are targeting the weaknesses in the Chinese. And so your question about okay, where are the weaknesses in the Chinese? Well, it is a home fight. They do have air force, they do have uh, ballistic missile systems, and they do have a fairly sizable Navy and, and Naval Air Wing as well. 
but they don't really work very well together. They're not really fully integrated in a joint force like we are. Now, they started on this road in 2014, but we started in 1986. So it's an advantage, mm. a combined arms advantage. In my assessment, it's kind of a wash. Their numbers, the fact that they are playing a home game and we have to move into their uh, backyard, so to speak, means it's going to be a maritime and air uh, fight more. So we can't bring our army in. They don't have the long-range fires yet to be relevant in this fight. Uh, and the Marines have to get there, uh, or better, be there already when the fighting starts to be relevant. But you, you're basically the way the geography, it kind of mitigates some of our joint advantages. So talk to me about the, the Republican candidates for president and where they are on this mm -hmm. issue, because it was a focus of the yeah. last debate, November 8th in Miami. And everybody was asked about, you know, do we have enough ships? This, you know, we're decommissioning, we're, we're losing ships. This seems like a problem. And then each candidate sort of weighed in. Chris Christie was the one who said, um, let's focus on submarines, uh, nuclear submarines over anything. What did you take away from here, you know, from hearing all of the different candidates positions? There's really only one candidate that it seems like it sounds like has done some serious thinking about this. And there's still a lot of work that has to go into this. And that's uh, Governor DeSantis when he was talking about, hey, by the end of his first administration, he'll be on his way to 355, 385 by the end of his of a second term and building towards 600. And that's that's reasonable and requires certainly isn't going to come cheap, but it certainly is informed by the shipyard capacities that we have today and what it would mm -hmm. take to grow that. And of course, uh, Chris Christie's right, too. Our nuclear submarines are right now, right now, it's not an assurance into the future, but our nuclear submarines are kind of like the secret weapon, basically the great balancer in a fight with China, because our submarines get underneath their sensors, get inside of their defenses, their A2AD, aerial denial and ballistic missile uh, networks. But we don't have the numbers. Uh, we could build more, we need to build more, but again, the Chinese also are advancing their anti-submarine capabilities, sensors on the seafloor, mines, mm. uh, aircraft that can go and hunt. So that advantage is not a guarantee of success in a war. And it also is becoming less and less of a deterrence to China. So while, yes, submarines need more of them, uh, it's not the only thing. And so well, right now, the best plan seems to be DeSantis's. Interesting. Okay. So but and I, on the submarine front... My understanding is we're, we are giving specific submarine technology to Australia as we sort of beef up our alliance with AUKUS, right? The, the, the Australia-British United States alliance. And Australia, obviously being closer to China, <laughs> uh, just geographically, is that why we're doing this? Is that why we're sort of trying to help Australia uh, have, I guess, submarine technology that we typically would not share yeah. that kind of tech with, with another country, even if they're an ally? So, well, there's a lot in there to unpack. Uh, so I'll try and take it in, in a couple of parts. So the first thing is the United States needs to build new, more nuclear submarines, as you mentioned earlier. We don't have we haven't been able to get to 2.0 build rate of submarines. We're down like at 1.2, 1.5, depending on who you talk to and what time of the year. But we need to get to three. The Australians wanting to build a nuclear submarine, which will take them 15 to 20 years to get to you know, where they're doing it at home, they're going to need to rely on the U.S. industrial base. Well, if the Australians invest in that, that's a, a near-term cure 
to actually start growing our ability to produce more submarines. So it helps us produce mm. more submarines. But in the longer term, it'll also, by the time the Australians get a delivery, we'll, we should be at 3.0, hopefully more per year. Um, so there's an advantage for us. It helps us in the near term. It helps them, the Australians, in the longer term. Uh, strategically, in the near term, the Australians are going to start training up and to maintain nuclear submarines. Well, they need to start doing that on our submarines when they come to visit Australia. And that builds up their knowledge base and their industrial base. But it also allows the U.S. Navy to do it while submarines are deployed in theater rather than coming home. And if we do get into a fight, it gives us another option to repair and to return those submarines more quickly to the fight. Again, we can't afford to lose very many of oh. these. If one's damaged, uh, transiting it all the way across the Pacific back to dry docks in Hawaii or in the West Coast, there's a lot of chances that you lose that damaged boat along the way. It's it's far, but it's closer to go to Australia. So the context of our entire conversation, Brent, is, yeah. is this feeling that we're going to be in the Indo-Pacific, right? And and possibly engaging in something kinetic. This talk of war between U.S. and China, it, is, is it inevitable? I mean, sometimes we talk about it and, it's, and I almost feel like I'm hyping it up. Like this, should we be more careful about how we talk about this? I mean, the, the president just met with Xi Jinping and seemed to say that we're, you know, calming things down. Are we mm. talking about something that we don't need to be talking about so much? Well, we have to be careful and not mirror American sensibilities or worldviews onto Chinese Communist uh, Party in Beijing. Uh, they don't share uh, our threat calculations. They don't share our strategic culture and they don't share our values. And so have to look at the realities on the ground and the histories uh, and focus in on the facts. And so the fact of the matter is, despite U.S., I guess, reduction in presence and reduction for 30 years in defense spending, the Chinese actually have doubled down, quadrupled down and grown even more quickly their own offensive capabilities and military. Mm. So they're not reflecting or responding to a reduction in strength in the U.S., quite the contrary. Uh, and then in history, the Chinese have a strategic culture of deception. And they do want to try to get forces and paint ourselves into a corner to where we don't want to respond or can't respond. And they win by fiat. Bridge Colby, a good friend of mine, would, would talk, talk about it, a fait accompli victory. And so that's what we have to be very careful. And the reality is, is if the Chinese act on Taiwan, they're going to trigger very core national interests, the United States. And quite frankly, a democratic country being assaulted and American citizens being killed in Taipei. And to the tune, there's 50,000 U.S. citizens living in Taiwan. Uh, when that happens, the American public's not going to allow our political leadership to sit idly by. Our hand's going to get forced. Brent Sadler of the Heritage Foundation, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. This coming week, we're keeping an eye on the latest out of Israel, as well as how Americans are feeling the economy as the holidays begin. Happy Thanksgiving, and thank you for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.